you all take a moment with me one more time for God's preaching as we listen? Let's pray together. Lord God, with all of my heart, that you would be with me this morning. Lord God, open every heart, every heart in this place to behold the wonderful things you are telling us about your son in this passage. Please overshadow me. Please take over, Father. Please help everyone listen. And this I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. To all of you this morning, amen. One of the things that makes Scripture so flammable in our hearts is how the story of Jesus is presented to us. His life and ministry on the earth. If we look closely, we find that Jesus' miracles were not just happenstance good deeds, right? They weren't random. It wasn't like Jesus was just around first century Palestine and every once in a while thought he would do a good deed or do something kind and benevolent for people. So often a miracle actually that Jesus was performing is surrounded by conversations or events that allow the miracle to illustrate the truth that Jesus was teaching. And that's certainly the case when we come to our text this morning in John chapter 10 and John chapter 11 actually. And it just so happens that the truth that is being demonstrated when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead ties very closely this morning with what we are celebrating this week in America, which is Independence Day. True freedom, which is, is something the world cannot give, is tied to the life that only Jesus can give. That which cannot give true life cannot Give true freedom. This isn't meant to be something peripheral to us, beloved. The, 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 the fact that true freedom only comes from Christ is not meant to be something about that, that we just kind of believe somewhere in the background of our minds and say, yes, of course, of course, the world can't give true freedom. Only Jesus can give true freedom. But then we live like true freedom is something the world can give because if the freedom the world can give gets threatened, we act like our lives and our hope depend on it. The freedom that comes from the life that Jesus gives is indestructible. It can't be taken away by laws. It can't be threatened by enemies. It can't be snuffed out by circumstances. It can't be rendered null and void because we continue to struggle with sin and we continue to suffer. Or struggle. The, the, the word of Jesus is a life-giving word. It's a life-creating, a life-shaping, a life-defining word. What we speak here when we open God's word from this pulpit has the power to raise the dead and to set us free. And I want to bring the threads between chapters 10 and 11 together this morning, but our focus is on the story of Lazarus, with which most of you are probably very familiar in John chapter 11, Jesus revealed himself to be the resurrection and the life for all those who believe in him. 
the life-giving word of Jesus raises the dead and sets them free from the weight of this world. So now may we hear and believe God's word together. I'll begin in chapter 11 and just read the first four verses to start. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, if we look closely this morning at John's text, he very deliberately here moves from general in chapter 10 to specific in chapter 11. And what I mean is, in John chapter 10, Jesus speaks of himself as a shepherd. He speaks as a, of a flock of sheep that he knows by name. And then the text moves from that large truth to one helpless little lamb named Lazarus and his two desperate sisters, Mary and Martha. The text says the sisters sent messengers to Jesus to tell him the one you love is ill. He's in need of you to come now. Please don't delay, Jesus. Get here as soon as you can. And if you know the story, something in verse 4 should strike us as a little bit strange. When Jesus says this illness does not lead to death. Yes, it does. Lazarus dies. So what is happening here? What does Jesus mean by that statement? Jesus says Lazarus's illness has a purpose. The glory of God, specifically that the Son of God would be glorified through it. If you've ever stood beside the bed of a sick or a dying or a dead loved one, it is not always easy to see the glory of God in those moments. It's downright impossible sometimes to even understand how the glory of God can be part of a conversation around a bed like that, in a situation like that. But that's where this text becomes so powerful. And so relevant for you and I this morning. It's in that moment. It's in that moment. Where God is not easy to see. Where the truth is not easy to understand. Where the glory of God is the farthest thing from our minds. When we just want Jesus to show up and do something. It's in that moment that this text becomes so real. And so true for you and I. We're two believing but desperate sisters this morning. We're almost like Lazarus this morning. And that brings us to the hinge of chapter 11. I want you to look with me at verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he dropped everything he was doing and sped as quickly as he could to Bethany to heal Lazarus. That's what the text has to say, right? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. In our minds, the only acceptable sentence to follow is, if he loves them, is, well, then he dropped everything and went right to Bethany. It's not what the text says. And I hope your translation gets the conjunction correct. It's so at the beginning of verse 6. It's not and. If you have a King James Version, it should say, therefore. Now, that's critical 
There's something in that that we might gloss over as we read to our harm. But every word is inspired of the Holy Spirit. This is written this way on purpose. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Well, that's not love. I mean, right? That's not, that's not love. At least not how we understand it. If he truly loved them, he does what they need in that moment right away with no delay. But that's not what he does. It's because he loves them that he doesn't go. But we're going to come back to that. But just so we're clear, the reason Jesus delayed is because he loved That's what the text says. Let's keep reading 7 through 16. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Right? Bless their hearts. They're a little bit dense in this moment. They're looking at each other. Yeah, you wake up. I don't know how it works in heaven, but here when you sleep, you just wake up. So we don't have to go where they're going to stone you probably if we show up verse 13 now Jesus had spoken of his death but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep then Jesus told them plainly Lazarus has died now look at verse 15 and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe let us go to him so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellows, fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So the very least that we can draw as we read through that from verse 15 is that Jesus is up to something in this text. And we have to understand here, Jesus does not have the same value system that we have. And that's coming out here. Jesus is glad that he wasn't there to keep Lazarus from dying. Because the belief, the faith of his disciples, of Mary and Martha, is more likely to be solidified by his not being there than if he had showed up in time to heal Lazarus. And listen, the distance wasn't an issue for Jesus anyway. The minute Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he could have thought it, and Lazarus would have been made well. That's not the issue here. Jesus is deliberately delaying, deliberately not healing the man. He didn't heal Lazarus on purpose because what will come about by letting Lazarus die is better than showing up in time to heal him. Do we trust our Savior enough to believe when that's the case? How we need the truth in this text, beloved. Let's keep reading at verse 17. Now when Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Sometimes it's easy when we read the Bible because it's the Bible to forget the human element, the reality of it, the normalcy of what was going on. Try to imagine for a moment that you're Mary or Martha and you sent the messengers and you're waiting for Jesus to arrive at any moment. And of course he would because he loved him. What's the message they sent? Lord, the one you love is ill. So of course they're thinking at any time now, Jesus is going to show up. He loves their brother, so he'll be there. We don't know exactly where Jesus was when he got the message. If he's still where the text placed him in chapter 10, verse 40, he would be about a full day's travel or more away from Bethany. So how long do you think it took then for the sisters to start to get worried and nervous as they waited and prayed and hoped and there's no answer? How long do you think before they start to doubt, maybe even that Jesus actually loved them and then their brother dies and still know Jesus. It's probably been about six days. They're about, where was he? Where was he? And you can feel it when Martha runs to him in verse 21 after she finally hears that he's coming into town. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, Martha isn't faithless. That's the thing. She believes in Jesus. She believes in his power. That's why she's so angry. She doesn't lack faith. She lacks understanding. And beloved, faith will not always equal understanding. It won't. More often than not, if we were honest with each other, there aren't answers. And there is a delay. And it doesn't make sense. And we can't figure out what God is doing. Can't you feel the woman's pain? This is how you'd feel. Jesus doesn't strike her dead for questioning. This is how you feel. My brother died. Where were you? She believes the scripture, but can I say something to you? I hope this makes sense. Knowing the scripture doesn't always equal peace. You know, we, we can... You might show up when somebody is in need. It's it's not always the best thing to just start firing away with texts. The person doubting and struggling and weeping in that moment might believe those texts just fine. It's just that how they connect to this moment isn't making any sense. That's where Jesus lives. She says, look, I, I know there's a resurrection coming for everybody. Jesus, I believe in that. But I want my brother back now. 
I don't want to wait for that. I, I believe that. I know that. I know the doctrine of a resurrection. I know about a life to come, but that isn't healing my broken heart right now. To which Jesus responds, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Me. You what he's saying to her. I'm where your hope is, Martha. Not in the doctrine. I know you believe that. Look to me. I'm resurrection. I'm life. I'm what you're hope I'm what you're hoping in. I'm where peace is. I'm where the answers are. Me. I give life, Martha. And whoever believes in me will have it forever. Now don't forget, that's what Jesus is doing here. Remember verse 15. He wants them to believe in him, in his person. Jesus isn't after cold adherence to the truth. He's after a relationship with people that is based on faith in him as a person. He is saying to her, He is saying to us this morning, I am what you need. Go farther than agreeing with sentences in a book. The words will not give you life. I will give you life. I will make you live. I'm the substance of all the doctrine, Martha. And I'll hold you close forever, whether Lazarus lived or died. Words can't do that, beloved. Words on a page can't hold us. In fact, knowing the words and not knowing the person will make the questions harder to find answers for. But Jesus can hold us. And he does, even when we can't hold back. Jesus is an after faithless adherence to truth. He's not after our mindless agreement with facts that we can just regurgitate week after week. He is after our belief in all that God is for us in him. And sometimes to get there, beloved, he is going to delay. June 13th, 1994, was a Monday night. I was... uh, playing Super Nintendo in my mom and dad's living room. I was home from college. I couldn't afford to stay, so I was living in the basement there for a while. And um, So I was up late. Everybody was in bed playing Super Nintendo. I think it was playing Street Fighter 2, but that's not important to the story. Um, my brother, one of my brothers, Andrew, was in his room, and he was eating. And, and my brother, Andrew, was 10 He was severely disabled from birth. He had cytomegalovirus, CMV. Couldn't walk or talk ever. When he was about six, he started to have uh, really bad seizures, which took away kind of all the, you know, he would laugh and smile. He couldn't communicate. He was blind. He had no control of his nervous system. He couldn't eat because he couldn't chew, so he was fed by a tube through his stomach. When he was five, he had surgery where they uh, 
broke his legs because he already had rigor mortis because he couldn't move. He just kept his legs bent, so they had to straighten him out. And he just suffered his whole life. And he was eating sorry the, the food was coming through the tube I'm playing the game and he started coughing he would cough sometimes and if the food was coming in too fast and so I stopped playing and I went in and I fixed the machine my parents taught all us kids you know how to fix that machine so in case this happened and so I went back out and I'm playing the game some more and he kept doing it and he kept doing it and I started to get irritated you know I'm trying to play a game here and I went back in the last time to fix his machine, and for some reason, I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave the room. I had to stay. And it had been probably months since I, I, I sat down and talked with him, and I just sat down and I just felt this like, massive urge to tell him how much I loved him and how precious he was to me and to our family and he was and I kissed his head and I just sat with him for a while and the, the machine was fine and he was fine and I went back and I ended up going to bed and uh, the next morning at 10.06 I heard my mom scream and I knew it was 10.06. I, I was sleeping in, obviously, because I'm 18. And, but I looked at the clock, and it was 10.06. And I heard my mom run from my brother's bedroom back to my dad's bedroom. And then I heard them both running. And I came upstairs. And he was dead. And we called the ambulance. They were trying to do CPR. They took him to the hospital. My parents had his kids stay. My mom called me from the hospital. I went to the hospital, drove over there. Um, they had him in a room off to the side. And the pastor was there. The youth pastor was there. My mom and dad, they were in a room. And my mom said to me, you can go in and be with him if you want to. So I did. I went into the room. And he's just... This shell is just there. And I stood there and seethed like Martha. Where were you? If you would have done something, my brother would not have died. I tell you that story for two reasons. One, when things like this get preached, I don't want you to think that, like, I don't know how brutal it is in a moment like that. My parents prayed and prayed and prayed. My dad was a pastor all my young life and prayed and prayed and prayed that God would heal my brother. And he never did. And then he died. His best year of health. He hadn't been in the hospital all year. And he just died alone in his sleep. His heart just stopped beating. So, Jesus doesn't, in his word, 
give us these things that like we can't really relate to or understand. I don't know how Martha felt. I know how I felt when my brother died. And I want you to understand something. The reason I tell you this story is to tell you that just because it feels like Jesus doesn't love you doesn't mean he doesn't love you. He let me have the gall to be angry with him. And I was, and, and I struggled, and I fought, and I, I didn't talk for a couple of days. I was just furious. And he stood by me, and he gave me peace. And th- that is one of the, the foundational moments of my life where I learned that Christ was near in a situation like that. He's not far off. Right? This story is in the Bible on purpose. This is where most of us either are, have been, or will be in this moment where the questions are there and Jesus isn't there. Or at least it feels that way. And we, we have to know this. We have to know this. Because Jesus, beloved, Loves us in his own way. And his own way is perfect. It's perfect. In fact, to put some more meat on it. Jesus is able to love us in his own way. Because the word he speaks can literally raise the dead. Literally. Jesus is going to prove something about himself in this text that shows us why his word is so crucial for our everyday lives and the everyday stuff we're going through from things like death to things like, uh, you know, I've I've when a mom is home with all the kids and she's ready to pull her hair out, you know, those moments, the big moments, the small moments that. But he's going to show us that. He's going to show us that he's there by letting Lazarus die. Because if he has the power to raise the dead, if Jesus has the power to confront our greatest enemy, he is not bound by our limitations. Does that make sense? He's loving you, seeing everything with the power to undo Whatever he wants to undo. That's how he's loving. That's his perspective in loving us. He knows that. We believe that. And then the bottom drops out. And we wonder. Jesus lives there. Jesus lives there. He will undo whatever the world does to us. He wants us to trust his hand. He wants us to trust his heart, to trust his timing. He wants us to believe in his love. What is impossible for us is nothing for him. Now, all of that ties into the theme here regarding God's word in the church. So we need to read on. Let's pick up at verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He's angry. The Greek word here is is indignant. Jesus is not weeping necessarily for sadness here in a moment. He is indignant at what is happening around him. They won't believe him. They doubt him. And I think he's also looking at what this world is doing to us. And he's a shepherd. Remember that we just, that was what we would have read if we would have read chapter 10. This is a shepherd here. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Why is that in the text? Because these are the real questions. Lord, you healed them. Why won't you heal them? You healed their family member. Why won't you heal mine? This is real. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. It's so sad. They're like, please, could you not embarrass us, please? Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So the glory of God, by the way, is visible in Jesus and his work. Remember that. 41, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, if you have your Bible with you, turn back very quickly to the beginning of John chapter 10. I'm going to read just the first four verses, then I'm going to read 27 through 30, okay? Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus said it in chapter 10, and then he did it in chapter 11. Lazarus, his own sheep by name, come out. And what did the little lamb do? He heard his shepherd's voice, and he followed him. And came out. 
It's not just a happenstance miracle. Lazarus heard his shepherd's voice and he came out. Why? What is Jesus saying? That's what my word does. It creates life even in the grave. Then he set Lazarus free from the clothes of death in which he had been wrapped, didn't he? Lazarus is going to die again. He's been divinely resuscitated. Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. Jesus was the first resurrected person. Lazarus has been resuscitated. He will die again. But this is a metaphor. Lazarus' resuscitation is a metaphor for what the word of Jesus can do because he is in his person the resurrection and the life. This is what what happens here with Lazarus is a physical picture of the spiritual reality Jesus will accomplish for all who believe in him. Eternal life and freedom. That's what he was trying to tell Martha. I will set you free from everything you feel right now. I'll set you free from the hopelessness and the despair. I'll set you free. I'll bring you to life How does Jesus go about it? His purpose was so that they would believe. How does Jesus go about it? By showing them that his word, his voice, gives life. That's how he does it. The voice of a shepherd. That is what the voice of a shepherd can do. Jesus wants us to know that this is what happens when the word of God becomes flesh and dwells among us. These words come to life and the Savior stands now. These words come to life. And this Savior stands now, beloved, as we speak literally, physically, human flesh and blood at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for his own, calling them by name over and over again into life and freedom as we go in and out of his pasture. Beloved, the word of Jesus gives life and the word of Jesus sets free. And he speaks the truth to us this morning so that we might believe in him. We need to see that Jesus Christ created belief here, created faith by delaying, by not answering their call, by denying in essence their request. Wouldn't you think, well that's How is that going to cause belief to not answer? That's why verse 4 is so important. In chapter 11, Jesus knew what he was going to do. He knew what he was capable of. And that is what he bases his work in our lives upon. He doesn't base his work, his answering, his movement in our lives based on our reality and our circumstances and our limitations. Jesus hears us call to him as our shepherd, as resurrection and life, as one that is not bound by what binds us. That's how he works for us and works on us and loves us and leads us and guides us as the one who has the power to raise the dead. So there's nothing we're asking for that if it happens is going to bind Jesus and not allow him to do anything. That's how he loves. And we believe that Jesus' love is perfect and it's way better than unconditional. 
I mean, I know we use that word, but there were conditions. Jesus just met them for us. The power and ability of his word is how Jesus listens and what forms his answer. Beloved, from Jesus' perspective, the illness did not lead to death because he is able to raise the dead. So he didn't have to leave immediately. And this is not common. Jesus does not raise people from the dead common throughout his ministry. He raises a widow's son. He raises Lazarus. But this is not common. The point here is not that he raises our deceased loved ones from the dead. The point here is that he doesn't have to. He is the resurrection and the life. And he is everything we need, whether they live or die. We have to know this because people die. We have to know this because sicknesses don't always get healed. Tumors don't always get removed. You know, sometimes the car is going to veer in to your lane. Sometimes we're going to pray that the storm won't come and the clouds are going to form and the storm is going to come. But having Jesus is better than anything he can do for you or anything he can get you. Do you believe this? Because he's the only thing that isn't going anywhere. There are hard truths to embrace. Jesus is the only thing that won't fade away. Jesus is the only thing that won't turn and run. That won't get old that won't decay he's the resurrection and the life and that's what we discover as we hear the life giving word again and again and again beloved we find the reasons to keep believing when all the evidence we can see would seem to be saying why do you still believe this I mean church attendance isn't important because you know, God's only going to let you in if you show up every time the doors are open. Church attendance matters because we have about two to three hours a week in the midst of a broken and fallen world to sit under Christ crucified, proclaimed for us. It matters because we need the word to breathe. We need to know him. And the way we know him is through his word because the purpose of it is to point us to him. This is a window. This is not a door. It's not a wall. Jesus speaks into the grave with the voice of a shepherd and his word creates life. He leads us and guides us in the darkness where no other voice can bring life. But on these pages, we not only encounter the one who gives life, but the one who sets us free. That's why the last word in the text is not Lazarus come forth. The last word in the text is unbind him and let him go. Freedom doesn't come from the world. How could it? This world can't give life, so it can't possibly give freedom. I want you to hear me. I mean not an ounce or a millimeter of disrespect to our country or to those who have had the metal to fight 
and to die for it. God bless every single one of them that have and that currently are. But while what we enjoy as Americans is wonderful, it's still not technically freedom. At a base level, what do you have or what can you deny do that isn't regulated or taxed? We are more free than other places, absolutely. But only in the sense that we're more able to do things we want to do. We're more able to pursue our dreams. We're more able to make our own choices for the most part. But, beloved, if in the dark where nobody's listening and we're honest, not even that has healed our souls and set us truly free. Most of the time, because we're fallen, we end up enslaved to what we thought would make us free and make us happy and satisfy us and give us life. We end up being enslaved to something that can never satisfy We just repeat the same cycle. We go after broken cisterns that can hold no water when God himself is the fountain of living water. There are places on this earth freer than others and brave men and women fight to sustain that, but no person, no government, no voice can transcend the limitations of reality and make us truly free. No document can undo the curse of sin and death. We aren't free to live forever. We aren't free to have our peace unthreatened. We aren't free to have indestructible joy. We're bound in so many ways. We're bound by the world, bound by the fall, bound in many ways by nature, bound by reality. And here comes Jesus, resurrection and life every second of every day. What he is doing in us now is unbinding us from it day after day after day to set us free so that no limitation has the final verdict on us. Jesus has the final verdict on us and he will wake us up. Notice, beloved, that the freedom Jesus bought, it wasn't gained by winning, was it? It was gained by what looked exactly like losing. Death on a cross at the hands of his enemies. In the cross, we begin to find all the answers, that that, that everything is reconciled, all the questions and the doubt, and that it's all reconciled through the cross. This one event where everything was turned on its head. But it wasn't possible for death to hold down the resurrection and the life. Beloved, it couldn't even hold him down. Like death couldn't even be final over him By dying, he rose again. He lives for us. He died for us. He rose for us. He sets free for us. His voice pierces the night. He walks on water. He walks on water. He raises the dead. Beloved, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in your rebellion. Come to him. When we open this book, we're not reading about how to get some skin in the game to bend this all-powerful God to our desires. When we open this book, resurrection and life are speaking to us because we're born dead in trespasses and sins. A descendant of Adam headed for the grave from the moment we're conceived. That line was broken by one the curse couldn't touch. 
And we find life by being in Him, not by staying in Adam and finding all the answers. God doesn't make sense of things in this world by giving us the answers. He makes sense of the things in this world by giving us His Son in His Word. God isn't out here loving to get fans. God doesn't need fans. He's not insecure. God is out here loving between the pestle and the mortar of real life where we live. Where there's no hope but the one who has conquered our greatest enemy and lives to take us beyond the sun. This is Jesus for you and I. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? This is what the Bible is trying to do, point us to life every time we open it. And we don't open this book, again, looking for answers on our terms. We open this book by grace, through faith, asking him to shine on us with the confidence that these words reveal a Savior who has not only experienced our pain and loss and suffering, who has not only felt why we have all the questions we have, who has lived as a man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief, who endured every temptation you and I have, yet was without sin. We encounter one on page after page who has transcended all of it and conquered it for us who will not always love by doing what we think he should, but who always loves like he thinks he should. And so the key is to learn to trust him. We will learn to rest when that's the case, whether he shows up on time or he's at least four days late. The life-giving word of Jesus raises the dead and sets them free from the weight of this world. I'm done, more or less. But I just want to close with this. So, so often in the church, nobody ever gets to know who we really are. You know, we tend to wear masks so that we can control the image that others have of us. You know, we, we don't want people to know that we struggle. We don't want them to know why we struggle. We want other people to think that we're good. That we have it all together, that we obey the Lord, that our family is good, our job is good, school is good, life is good. And, and I understand that to some degree because, unfortunately, sometimes the church is one of the least safest places to be real about who you are. And I hate that. I hate it. I, I wish that we as Christians would understand that it's our pretense. It's the front we put up that we're righteous and everything is together that hurts our witness. It's not showing people that we actually don't have it all together. That would actually help, probably. We don't need to try to sin, right? We don't need any help. But, like, if we just put up this perfect image all the time, you know what people that aren't saved are going to think when they're close to us? I could never be a Christian. I'm not perfect. I just, again, we're not trying to sin. But just be real. They need to know that he forgives that it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. And we're all running around trying to look perfect. I think most of us are struggling, to be honest. I think most of us struggle. I 
I don't mean everyone's as bad off as they can be, not by any means. And, but there are people all around us this morning that are barely hanging on. That they're, they're, they're trying to hold up under the weight of who knows what, and I think for the most part that's the normal human experience. But do you know that Jesus died for the you that nobody else can see? You know that he didn't die just for the cleaned up version of you that you're trying to convince him and everybody else that is the real you. He died for you at your worst, for the real sins. He knew what he was dying for. He knew what he was bleeding for. And he stayed up there until he died. Because we need a savior. We don't need help. He came to rescue us from us at our worst, beloved. So in these moments when you doubt and when you're afraid and when the answers aren't there and nothing makes sense and you can't put everything together, you remember that if it's Christ that saves us and loves us and holds us, nothing in all creation can separate us from him. Nothing. Nothing. Who can bring any charge against God's elect ones? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn you now? That Christ Jesus is the one who died for you. His blood and his righteousness are sufficient for you now. They were yesterday. They will be tomorrow. Whether you're all in, doing everything right, or almost all the way out and can't make sense of anything, Christ is enough. Christ holds the line. Resurrection and life. Call out to him this morning. Have life and be free, beloved. Have life and be free. June is going to come and play. I'll be here as we sing the invitational. If any of you need to come and pray, if you have any needs, and when that's finished, we'll take the Lord's Supper together.